Let's begin with prayer, shall we? Our Father, we savor the richness of the revelation that you have given, both to the fathers in time past and to us in these last days through your Son. We are glad to acknowledge that he is the center of all that you have disclosed about yourself, whether it is to the fathers of the former times or to us of these last times. It is our fervent desire to see Christ across all of the times, the times of the beginning, the times of the middle, so we live in the midst of the times and the times of the end, even the end of those middle times. Lord, we see ourselves in the light of eternity, even as those who have sojourned as pilgrims in every age have made their way by faith to a city whose builder and maker is God. It is in that place that your son has taken his seat. And it is that to that place that he has invited us to sit together with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. As we consider this part of your word this evening, you enable us to see your son, see him truly, see him rightly, see him with love, and deep gratitude. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, now, uh, returning to that back page of handout number five this evening, I want to make some comments on the texts that are cited there. Those two paragraphs that are printed are summaries of what we discussed last week, particularly as we focused on the uh, nature of the angels. You'll notice that the first one, the confession of Tarkal and Torah, are probably documents unknown to you. Uh, Tarkal is a village in northeastern Hungary, and Torah is a village in Transylvania, Does anyone know uh, what we call Transylvania today? We don't call it Transylvania. What is the country where you would find the ancient or old nation of Transylvania? Is it Romania? It is Romania. Very good, Kay. Yes. uh, Ancient Transylvania is modern-day Romania. And so here we have uh, two... Uh, a, a confession which was adopted by two towns, uh, one in Hungary, one in Transylvania, a confession which is Reformed or Calvinistic, was adopted in 1562, as you can see, in the village in Hungary, and the next year, 1563, in the village in Transylvania. That means that the Calvinistic Reformation came to Hungary and Transylvania. And indeed, it came to all of Eastern Europe in the latter part of the 16th century. 
Both Poland, Hungary, and Transylvania were visited by a Calvinistic revival. Now, that will be the subject of our Reformation Day celebration this year. Every year, Northwest Theological Seminary sponsors a Reformation Day observation, and on Friday evening, October 29th at 7.30 here in this place, we will talk about the unknown Reformation, the Reformation that not many of us know a great deal about, and that is Calvinism as it came to Poland and to Hungary and to Transylvania. Well, here you have a document from Hungary and Transylvania which summarizes the biblical doctrine of angels, and you'll notice some of the things that we discussed last week are in this confessional statement, that the angels are invisible spirits, they are created beings, they are divided into good and evil, or elect and non-elect, And this statement mentions the fact that the Sadducees did not believe in them, did not believe that they were real beings. Those are some points that we covered uh, last week in our uh, kind of overview of the angels, vis-a-vis the catena of quotations uh, from chapter 1, verse 5 to 14 here in the Epistle to Hebrews. Now, uh, one of the Uh, phrases or the issues I want to uh, comment on is the last sentence in this statement from the confession of Tarkal and Torah. You will notice that the uh, writers of the confession say, likewise, the Manichaeans who assert that the devils arise from themselves and are evil by nature not through the corruption of nature. Now, likewise continues the condemnations or what they are rejecting. So this confession is rejecting the Manichaeans, which raises the question, who are the Manichaeans, number one, and what do the Manichaeans teach as it is summarized here uh, in this statement? In other words, what is the doctrine of the Manichaeans with respect to the angels? So let's begin with the question of the Manichaeans. Uh, Who knows who the Manichaeans are? Ask our professor of New Testament who the Manichaeans are. Well, they come from a guy named Manis. Yes, Mani. And what country was he from? Was he from Iran? Yes, and they didn't call it Iran in those days. What did they call it? Persia? Persia or Parthia, yes. So he's from uh, Persia or Parthia, from that region we call Iran today. And uh, he lived in what century? Well, it's before Augustine, so it's probably the second or third century. Third century, very good. You're you're wonderfully inductive. Yes, he's a third century figure. Okay, so he's actually post-Christian. And uh, let's give someone else a chance. What What is his basic uh, orientation? Or what is his basic doctrine? Benji's been hovering around back there in the background. He's just longing to answer this question. What's the basic principle that Mani threw out into the history of the world? Benji? 
dualist. He's a dualist. Now, what do you mean he's a dualist? Explain, uh, explain that for the benefit of the lay members here. Uh, good and evil are uh, equal to the principles of the universe. He believes in a good God and a God, bad God. So there's a good God who is almighty. He is omnipotent. And there is a bad God who is equally almighty and omnipotent. That's what Benzie meant when he says he believes in a dualism. Now, this is a cosmic dualism. This is not an antithetic dualism in the sense that there are tensions here. These are two gods who are equally supreme. And consequently, you have the problem of dualism, whether it's philosophical or religious. So... Why does Monty believe in these two equally ultimate gods? Can you think of why he might believe in two equally ultimate gods, Kay? Well, he saw good and he saw evil, so he thought, well, there must be something there. Excellent. Excellent. Do you see good and you see evil? Oh, yes. Yes. But do you theorize that there is a good God and a bad God out of that? No. No? Well, why is it that he went that direction when you don't? I guess he didn't understand God. (laughs) (laughs) That's exactly right. He didn't understand God. I I like that. (laughs) Why did he think he was trying to uh, understand God? Why did he think he had some kind of solution here? Art, what do you think? What do you think he's uh, working with? It's like a wild guess. Sure. All right, you're on the right track. So he's attempting to solve what? The fact of evil. Yes, he's he's dealing with the existence of evil, and so he cannot resolve it in any other way than say there are equally ultimate powers. Okay, one is a good power, the other is a bad power, and they are in constant conflict. Otherwise, he says, you cannot solve the question of the origin of evil. And so, Art, this evening, would you propose for us your solution to the origin of evil? uh, Is it Manichaean? No. K agrees with you. Okay. Well, then, what is the solution to the origin of evil? God's creature is rebelled against What's that? God's creatures rebelled against him. Yeah, but isn't he in control of everything? But you don't want this solution to that conundrum. So Bill behind you is going to give his answer to the solution to the problem of evil. And Bill, what do you say? Genesis 3. Well, if we press this into the ontological arena, that is, into the absolute arena, how do you resolve that? Yes, you can indicate that in the historical arena it arises from the fall of mankind. But how can it coexist with a good and perfect God? Hi, your name, Bill? No, Bill, you can't have Pete bail you out. God would have allowed for the possibility of evil, 
Okay, so in his determination to create the world before there is any fall, he has allowed for the possibility of the origin of evil or the existence of evil. Is he the author of it? How can he be, not be the author of it and yet decree all that comes to pass? And Bill says? We leave that to God. Pardon? We leave that to God. Very good. Bill says, I don't know. We leave that to God. Yes, that's, that's the right answer. I'm, in this uh, colloquium doctrine, uh, we have uh, gotten to the right point. The issue here, of course, is this constant historical discussion of how we solve this problem. This does not solve the problem because we have two equally ultimate omnipotent beings. That can't be true. That simply is contrary to any common sense. So it doesn't solve the problem of evil. Having not solved the problem of evil, then what do we do with it? Well, with Augustine, who was a Manichaean, ah, Augustine spent several years in Manichaeism. Augustine attempts to solve the problem of the origin of evil, and he solves it negatively. That is, evil is the absence of good. Duh. Yes. Come on, Augustine. My three-year-old can say that. Why do you think that you've given some profound answer to the question? Well, we go down through the history of the church and many minds that have grappled with this from Augustine on to Aquinas to Calvin and others like Jonathan Edwards. In fact, every Christian in their own way, simply or more profoundly, thinks about it and tries to come to grips with you know, how this can exist, how this can coexist. And ultimately, there is no answer at the level where, as you may remember, I was pushing Bill, I was pushing Bill back into the infinite mind of God before there was any actual fall or rebellion against him. So there's nothing wrong with thinking about this. Other great minds have grappled with it. It's obviously they are part of revelation. In other words, God is revealed in Scripture as perfectly good, and yet he does control evil. How does he control evil? How does he use it for his own purposes? Joseph's famous statement, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. How does this happen without God himself being involved in the cause of the evil itself? That is, that he is the authorial cause, that he is the agent. And the church throws up its hands and says, at some point, we can't resolve that issue. We know he is not. We confess that he does not cause sin in the sense that he is the agent that is actively involved in it. He does permit it. He does order and decree it for his glory. But he is not the active author. So this is no solution. And every other solution that is attempted to propose a solution ultimately falls short at a particular point. But it has been tried and it is worth thinking about. We just observe here that the Manichaeans uh, don't have a, a cogent answer. Now, what are the Manichaeans say? This part of the Manichaean doctrine, which is described by the confession, what are they saying? <clears throat> In other words, when they assert the devils arise from themselves, what are they saying there? 
Robert? It would seem to me that they were, would be saying that uh, God didn't create these devils. He's not the first cause. They just came about by themselves. Not the, the good God is not the first cause of them. Okay? All right? Now, when it says that they arrive, they are evil by nature, not through the corruption of nature, what, what are they, what are these Manichaeans doing there? The key here is that phrase, not from corruption of nature. Meaning what? Oh, okay, so it wouldn't have uh, been uh, Adam's fall that created them. Uh, no, not Adam's fall, but you're, you're heading in the right direction. Whose fall? Well, Satan's fall. Satan's fall. See, the corruption of their nature. What does he mean? What do they mean by the corruption of their nature? It is parallel to Adam's fall. What do we mean by the corruption of Adam's nature? Well, Adam acquired uh, sin. Yeah, by, by the fall. Yes, exactly. So we go back to the angels? Yeah, the, but the angels, well, that doesn't make sense. <laughs> how were they created? According to Scripture, how were they created? According to Scripture, they were all created perfect, just like Adam. And what happened? And then one-third of them fell. Right? Okay. Well, well, we'll argue about the percentages, but nonetheless, they fell. And in falling, what happened to their nature? The nature got corrupted. In That's the it. That's it. So, see, it's not by corruption of nature is what the Manichaeans are saying. Whereas the Scripture is saying by corruption of nature. The same thing that happened to Adam happened to them. They were put on probation. They failed the probation, even as Adam put on probation, failed the probation. That is, they rebelled against God by sinning, and their nature was corrupted. But the Manichaeans say, no, that's not how they are evil. They are not evil by corruption of nature. They are evil by anyone? By nature or by creation. They were created evil. Even as this good God creates the good angels, this bad God creates the evil angels. So that's what that phrase is expressing. And here is a Reformed confession articulating not only a rejection of cosmic dualism, but articulating a rejection of the fact that the angels did not fall. For if they were created evil, they did not fall into a state of corruption and evil. Any questions about that? Yes, David? What does this mean for Satan's fall? Was it out of his very nature and being that he sinned, or was it a quintessentially volitional decision As we grappled with that last week, the answer is, yes, it is volitional on his part. What is it that spurs the volitional rebellion on his part against God? And we suggested that Milton, in his Paradise Lost, may have put his finger on something, uh, namely that it is the uh, enthronement of the Son of God as the King of Heaven before the creation. Uh, now, that's about as close as we can get to what it what provoked the jealousy in Satan to rebel against God. 
but it does have uh, kind of a pattern of hubris in it, which is parallel to the pattern of hubris in Adam himself. There was another hand back there. Yes? Okay, um, if God allows for the possibility of evil, obviously, in his creation, could he create without being the creator of evil? He's obviously going to have to create in his creatures the ability to do that evil. I mean, I'm sure you, you shot holes in this idea years ago when we talked about this as children, but what... Why couldn't God just allow his creatures to have that without being a creator of evil? Why why couldn't he just allow his creatures to have that and go down that path, permit them to go down that path without being the creator of it? Well, he does permit them to go down that path without being the creator of it. He creates them in a state of mutability. That, In other words, the Westminster Confession says, and yet mutably so. In other words, they could change. So he created Adam upright, and yet Adam sought out his own inventions. Right. Creates the angels upright, yet they seek out their own inventions, their own volitional inventions. They're moved to uh, oppose their creator. <clears throat> he permits them. He permits them to do that. Why not in the permission? Is he removed from the creation of it? Why in allowing man and the angels to go that route? Does he? Is he not? How is he the creator of it? If he simply says, "I will allow it," how is he the creator of it in that scenario? Because he's not the active agent in performing it. To permit is one thing; to perform the act is another. Right. So why isn't that the answer to the question? Well, it is the answer to the question, but it doesn't press it back to the further metaphysical dimension, which is where Augustine and others are trying to press it. In other words, how can you reconcile what appear to be two antithetical statements when you push them all the way to their logical conclusion? So we come down to what you have articulated, namely it comes down to God's permission, which is not equivalent to God's own active involvement in it. And where we have the language of Scripture, for instance, that he hardened Pharaoh's heart, that is a language which is permissive language. He hardens Pharaoh's heart by not softening it. He just allows it to go its own natural way. It's not that he's pouring more concrete or cement into uh, Satan's heart, into Pharaoh's heart as if he's the active agent involved in calcifying a heart that's already calcified. He just decides not to uncalcify it, not to soften it. Yes, Robert? Wouldn't there, uh, with Manny coming from Persia, wouldn't there have been some uh, pagan religions that would have influenced his framework on very, this? Very good. I, I didn't go into that, but since you raised the question, yes, there was. And who's he, whose shoulders is he standing on? Zoroaster. Zoroaster, that's correct. <clears throat> also, Sprach Zarathustra, those of you who are Richard Strauss fans. Or 2001, the great movie soundtrack. Okay, well, uh, Zoroaster is a 7th century B.C. Persian uh, religious uh, guru who also invents a cosmic dualism. And so the fact that Mani arises out of the Persian context, as Robert uh, uh, perceived, there is something in the background that creates the climate for this uh, post-Christian uh, dualism. Any other questions? 
Good, good thought. You you have another one, Robert? Go ahead. Um, it seems to me, well, where does Manny come up with a philosophical base for determining what is good or bad? I mean, the atheist has the same problem. There's no philosophical basis uh, to determine good and bad. No, that is that is true. Uh, he's trying to reprise the ancient Persian religion. In other words, he's trying to revive it. And in so doing, he's trying to assert a, shall we say, more modern affirmation of it, a more modern affirmation of dualism in the third century A.D. All right, now that second quotation, that second block quote, comes from the second Helvetic confession of 1566, another Reformed confession, when uh, we read that it's Helvetic, uh, what does that mean? Sarai, do you know what that means? Helvetic? Christina? Calvinistic? Is it Calvin? From Calvin? Oh. It's Calvinistic, but Helvetic does not mean Calvinistic. Reformed. It's Reformed, but that's not what Helvetic means. Helvetic means what? Ben? Or was that you, Craig? No, no. Ben? Switzerland. Switzerland, yes. It is from Switzerland. Now, the next question, Ben, who wrote it? This is perhaps the most famous Reformed confession of the 16th century. More famous than any of Calvin's catechisms or confession because it had such a great impact across Europe once it was released. In fact, it will be adopted in a sense by the Hungarian and the Polish and the Transylvanian Reformed churches as it will be implicitly adopted by some German as well as some French Reformed churches. So it's a very important document. Benji, who wrote it? Bullinger. Yes, Heinrich Bullinger wrote it. And where is Heinrich Bullinger living when he wrote it? Zurich. Zurich, Switzerland. Why is Heinrich Bullinger in Zurich, Switzerland? How do you get there? Benny? Uh, that's where Zwingli was. Exactly. And Bullinger is? Zwingli. He is a Zwingli and he is? He is the successor to Ulrich Zwingli. Yes, when Zwingli dies... <coughs> In Zurich, at the Battle of Capel in 1531, he actually dies on the battlefield fighting the Roman Catholics. Okay, Zwingli had started the Reformation in Zurich, Switzerland. He had been attracted to it by Luther in Germany. But he took a detour against Luther's doctrine of the Lord's Supper, the Zwinglian doctrine of the sacraments. All right, well, when he died in 1531, the... Uh, Fathers of the city chose a man to succeed him as the leader of the Reformation in the city of Zurich, and that man was Heinrich Bullinger. Bullinger, in 1560, actually in 1564, wrote this confession. It was published two years later. It's a superb articulation of the Reformed faith, and because it was so finely articulated and precisely defined, it became a kind of model for others, particularly the Hungarian Reformed Calvinists, the Transylvanian Reformed Calvinists, and the Polish Reformed Calvinists. So it's a very famous uh, document. Uh, Zwingli, or Bullinger himself died in 1575. 
And there's another kind of side story to uh, writing this document. Zwingli wrote, or Bullinger wrote it after the death of his wife. It was almost like an expression of his catharsis of grieving as he poured out his heart in confession and wrote down this document that eventually became known as the Second Helvetic Confession. Again, as you read through that paragraph, you will notice a number of the same things that we observed last week about uh, the survey and overview of angels uh, in the Word of God. Any questions about uh, that document there? All right. Well, we haven't answered the question why the writer of Hebrews has this interest in angels and begins his epistle with a great emphasis upon angels. So if you were to answer that question, what would you suggest? Why is he interested in discussing angels? Ben? Well, because the Mosaic law was said to have been given by angels. And how do you know that from this epistle, Ben? Yes, you're right. How do you know that from this epistle? Does anybody know where it is? 2-2. Yes, chapter 2, verse 2. The words spoken through angels. All right, now obviously... As Ben indicated, this is a reference to the Mosaic Law. <clears throat> well, uh, is it because the angels have been instrumental in the giving of the law that he's concerned with angels, or is it some other nuance, some other aspect of this question? In other words, just because the law was given by angels, is that, uh, is that <clears throat> the, the full explanation for his concern with them? Art? I would say he wants to compare angels to uh, the Son and to show that the Son is superior. All right, so it's not so much the fact that the law was given through angels as this comparative aspect of the relationship between the Son of God and the angels. In fact, at the end of verse 4 here in chapter 1, he says that the Son of God is better than the angels. David, you were going to make a comment? Well... The whole uh, Levitical uh, order of worship, that, uh, you have the Ark of the Covenant with the angels on top. Uh, and so the focus in, in the uh, sacrificial system might gravitate towards that. And, and um, the true worship of God is set forth in Hebrews. So what are you suggesting? That there may have been some worship of angels involved? Um, perhaps. Uh, All right, let's hold on to that one and let's turn back to the book of Colossians for a moment. Colossians chapter 2, verse 18. Colossians 
And Loretta, do you have it yet? I do. Do you read, please? Thank you. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen, and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. Notice the phrase, worship of angels, there. Okay, the issue of worshiping angels was alive at Colossae, and Paul addressed that issue. <clears throat> is, that what going, is that what is going on here in the audience that our writer to the Hebrews is, in, is confronting? Is he confronting the worship of angels? I don't think so. <clears throat> I don't think that his interest in the angels is because of a deviant adoration of them. It is certainly something worth considering since it does appear elsewhere in the New Testament, particularly in Paul's letter, and it was abroad in Asia Minor, in Colossae. But <clears throat> is it necessarily abroad in this community? I'm not sure. He doesn't seem to focus on it for that particular reason. Well, how is it that at Colossae they were interested in worshiping angels? How did the worship of angels arise in the first century or even before? In the intertestamental period, now when I say intertestamental period, what do I mean? What am I talking about when I say intertestamental period? Sarai, what am I talking about? No, intertestamental, between, very good, so between who? So between Malachi and Matthew. Between M&M, between the M&M boys, right, between Malachi and Matthew, exactly. So this period between Malachi and Matthew, about 400 years, plus or minus, is the period in which what books are authored? Kristen? The Apocrypha. The Apocrypha, yes. And the Apocryphal books which arise out of the intertestamental period have particularly one book which features a great activity and concentration on angels. And that book is the book of Tobit. T-O-B-I-T. The book of Tobit. <clears throat> there comes a kind of superstition about angels that arises out of the Hellenistic Jewish experience. And that experience in the intertestamental period leaves its mark on the apocryphal literature, particularly on one book, in, uh, especially the book of Tobit, that was also present in First and Second Enoch. All right, so it is conceivable that there is this kind of superstitious attraction of uh, angelic beings, not necessarily for purposes of worship, but for purposes of uh, you know superstitious. Uh, uh, actions or thinking about them in particularly uh, bizarre ways that is uh, demonstrated in some of the bizarre stories in the Apocrypha, and they are bizarre. If you've ever read through the Apocrypha, you've said there's some strange stuff there. Very, very strange indeed. All right, <clears throat> well, uh, <clears throat> the last suggestion is somewhat obvious, somewhat like Ben's comment. Uh, Ben's observation is correct. There is interest in the angels because of their relationship to the giving of the law, chapter 2, verse 2, 
But notice what he is doing here. He has, at the end of verse 4, talked about this better name or this better uh, uh, exaltation of the Son of God over the angels. He's arguing from the lesser to the greater. From the lesser to the greater. The angels are less than the Son of God. And therefore, going back to Ben's observation in 2.2, what does that mean about the word that has come? Notice, the word that was spoken by angels in 2.2 is contrasted with the word that is spoken through the Son in 1.2. His theme then is the surpassing excellence of the revelation as well as the surpassing excellence of the person involved. From the lesser to the greater. Not just the lesser to the greater in terms of the personal dignity of the Son of God vis-a-vis the created angel, but the surpassing excellency of the revelation that's been given through the Son of God. What was spoken by him is greater than what was spoken through them. And he parallels them in the second verse of the first. He contrasts them and parallels them in the second verse of the first two chapters. So obviously it's this aspect of revelation through the sun which we have been featuring and concentrating on since we began to open this first chapter, the eschatological finality of that which has been revealed through the Son of God in his incarnation and in his ascension and session at the right hand of glory. But why not begin with that exalted paradigm? Why bring the angels into this narrative? Well, let's consider the narrative thesis that I have offered, namely that the epistle to the Hebrews is the epistle to the pilgrims of the New Testament age, the sojourners of the end of the age. And let's ask ourselves now, why does the writer begin with the arena of the angels? Is it because the pilgrim whom Christ himself is, the final pilgrim, the ultimate pilgrim, the pioneer and perfecter, as he's called in chapter 12 of this epistle, is it because that that final and ultimate pilgrim begins his journey in the arena of the angels? Does he begin the sojourn of the Son of God in the place where that sojourn is inaugurated? And so beginning his story of becoming a pilgrim into the history of redemption, into the economy of redemption, in beginning his story, he begins with the arena in which he first appears. The angels know about the Son of God before Adam knows about the Son of God. They know about the Son of God because they have been created to worship him before Adam has been created. And so this emphasis upon the angelic beings and the angelic arena is a way, once again, not only of exalting the Son, the the better is greater than the lesser, but also 
inaugurating the journey. The pilgrimage begins in eternity. It begins in the arena in which the creature must adore the creator. And out of that arena, Son of God enters time and space history. And so the sojourn will continue. And as we look and look at this epistle unfold, we're going to note that it unfolds, if I'm correct, in observing from the angelic arena, pre-creation, that is pre-earthly created creation, it unfolds from the arena of, uh, of heaven before the creation of the earth to the arena of Adam at the creation of the earth to the arena of Abraham to the arena of Moses, to the arena of Israel in the wilderness, to the arena of Joshua entering into the promised land, to the arena of David, and to the arena of the prophets. In other words, we're going to watch this writer unfold the sequence of the chronology of the history of redemption by beginning with eternity or beginning with heaven itself and the sojourn of the Son of the Father from eternity in heaven to to the earth, from the Adamic to the Abrahamic to the Davidic to the prophetic eras, all down to his appearance in his own incarnation, which is essentially what chapter 11 is doing in summarizing this great journey of the pilgrims of old. All right. Now, I may not be right about this observation, so I'm not dogmatic about it, And yet, it is attractive if, in fact, the narrative thesis, the pilgrim narration, is appropriate to examining this book, then our author is going to begin where the pilgrim himself begins. He's going to begin with his his endorsement, his reception by the angelic beings in glory before the heavens and the earth are created. Any questions or comments about that? Yes, David? Uh, well, at least to me, the uh, comparison with angels, I have, uh, it's against the backdrop that we're in union with Christ. And while angels are... In our present world, they're superior in intellect and power and every other aspect that we can practically major. We're in union with Christ, and he is our high priest. He is at the right hand of the throne, not as an angel, but as the God-man. And we're in union with him. We're... We, in eternity, are going to be exalted over the angels. They'll be below us in rank, as it were. Yes, even as they are below the Son himself in rank. I don't think that our author is at the point of considering the union with Christ yet. I think that that is going to come in chapter 2. I think that he is talking, once again, about the angels in this relationship which exists before there is the necessity for redemption. It's not that redemption hasn't been decreed or ordained, but it has not, its necessity has not taken place through the fall of man into sin and transgression. All right, now moving on to uh, handout number six, 
as we look at the katana of these quotations from the Psalms and a couple of other places, 2 Samuel 7 and Deuteronomy 32, there is a sequence that comes out, a sequence that you can see even in your English translation. If you look at the first line of verse 5, you'll notice the emphasis upon the sun, and then in 5D, once again, the name of the sun is given. Then in verse 6, the emphasis is upon the angels. Verse 7 duplicates that. In fact, angels is used twice in that verse. But in verses 8 and 9, we are back to the sun again. And in verse 10, with that conjunction, and. Now, the conjunction and, the English word and, is grammatically described as a coordinating conjunction. Conjunction is something that joins clauses or joins ideas. Coordinating conjunction, that is, it coordinates ideas. So, who is the subject of the thou or the you in verse 10? The coordinating conjunction and... Bill, it is the sun from verse 8. Notice this and in verse 10 is taking you back to the sun in verse 8. And this coordinating conjunction is and the sun as in verse 8. So and the sun in verse 10 and following. Therefore, we have a nice kind of virtual chiastic sequence here. 5a, the sun, 5b, the sun, 6, the angels, 7, the angels, 8 and 9, the sun, and 10 and 12, the sun, only we might want to put the sun in brackets since the word does not appear in the text. Every place else in the text where sun appears, the Greek word huios, the Greek word for sun, is in the Greek. Now notice once again, when you step back from that sequence, How many times is the name son used or implied? Did you count them up? Four. Four. How many times is angels named or implied? Two. Two. So, twice... Two is four. The lesser and the greater is even used in the contrast of the language, the contrast of the characters in this katana. He even structures it in such a way that the name of the son is greater than the angels by count. 
All right, I won't push that too hard, but nonetheless, it is interesting that, in fact, the sequence falls out in that relationship. All right, now, we have relational language in verse 5. This is a very important verse uh, in the chapter. And by relational language, we're picking up on terms of relation. And the first one in 5a, we've already identified in the sequence. So that would be the word son. And son implies a corresponding relation. For if 5a specifies son, what does that imply? Anyone? Father. Very good. All right. So if we have a son, we have a father implicitly, if not explicitly. All right. Now, in the next uh, part of this uh, verse, we have uh, 5b and c. Where the key term, the key relational term here is what word? Yes, uh, father is explicit there, but what do you find before, what term do you find before father, Ben? Begotten. Begotten. Followed by the term father, or by the name father. In other words, a begotten implies a begetter. Correct? Which leads us again to 5D. And what do we find in 5D again? Anyone? Sign again. Notice, once again, the slight chiastic structure here to the occurrence of the terms. But what is more important is the relational language. When I'm saying relational language, I'm talking about persons in relationship. A father in relationship to his son. One who is begotten in relationship to one who begets. These are the terms that the scripture uses. We are not imposing these categories upon the Godhead. These are the terms that the scripture uses to describe the personal relations within the persons of the Godhead. Father and Son and Holy Ghost, though that's not under discussion here, Father and Son and Holy Ghost are the terms that the Bible uses about these persons in relationship to one another. There is a Father, there is a Son, there is a Holy Spirit. The Father is not the Son. The Father and Son are not the Holy Spirit. The Son is not the Father or the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Father or the Son. There are three personal relationships in this one divine being. That's the language of the Bible. All right, so we have the names of the persons in relationship, particularly here in chapter 1, the Father and the Son. Now, what does this word begotten mean? It is there in the text. It comes out of the quotation from Psalm 2. 
It is used routinely in John's gospel, the only begotten son of the father. It is used in 1 John. It is a term that appears over and again in the New Testament. What does it mean? Does it mean to create? Does it mean to bring into being? To bring into existence? Is that what the term begotten means here in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 5 in Psalm chapter 2 verse 7? Let us think about that. If the word begotten means to bring into being, to bring into existence, then there was a time when he was not he was not what and then there was a time when came into being and with respect to the one who brings him into being he was not a father he was not a father okay that phrase a paternal on your outline when we have that a prefix before a word like atheist Asymmetrical. What's that mean? Not. not means not. Yes, an atheist says there's not a God. Asymmetrical, it's not symmetrical. A paternal, he was not father. All right, let's understand what we're saying here. If we are saying that begotten means created, then there was a time when the father was not a father. And yet the Bible talks about a father and a son and a Holy Spirit and doesn't talk about a person of the Godhead who is never father. He is always father. He is never a paternal. But if begotten means created, then there was a time when he was not a father. There was a time when he was alone simply as a solitary person. You follow that? Loretta, you follow that? Okay, okay. How about you, Kay? You follow that? Okay. We're trying to think about whether the father ever was not a father. All right, now the next question is, if there is not a time when the father is not a father... Is there a time when the son is not a son? Very good. Why, Kate? Because if the father wouldn't be a father. Excellent. Excellent. You just answered Arius. Athanasius is proud of you, Kay. All right. So... Notice what is it, what, what we're doing here. We're talking about the language of personality that is there in the scriptures. The scriptures talk about God the Father. They name him that. All right, now, they also talk about God the Son. If there was a time when the Son was not in existence and had to be created or made, 
then there would be a time when the father couldn't be called father. So as long as there has been a father, so long has there been a son. And how long has that been? Eternity. From all eternity. As eternal as the father is, so eternal is his son. There was never a time when the father did not have his son alongside of him. There was never a time when the son did not have his father alongside of him. They were personally related. Always eternally personally related. Was as, as long as there was the person of the father, so long was there the person of the son. Because if he was created, then there was a time when there was no son of the father. All right, so the imprint of the father's what is upon the son. His character. I want it stronger than that, Ben. Essence. His essence. From what verse? Notice verse 3. We've already covered this. He is the imprint or the very stamp of the upostasis or the essence or nature of God. So, he is the essence or substance or nature of God his Father, which means that he is God. God. He is God. If he has the nature of God, he has the essence, the substance of God, then he is God. So, the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is also God. But these are not three gods, but one God. Thank you, Athanasian Creed. Another good reason for you to read it and recite it. But notice the argument as it's proceeding here. The Son has already been described as the very nature and essence of God his Father. And now here in this verse, the writer talks about how that nature, how that essence how that substantial deity is communicated to him. It is communicated to him by being begotten. All right, now, how does the father beget? Eternally and in accordance with his nature. Let's start with in accordance with his nature. The Father begets in accordance with his nature. What is his nature? God. Godness. So he begets in accordance with his godness nature. Does he beget a creature? Good. Why? Because God himself is not a creature. Very good. <clears throat> if I beget a son, do I beget that son in accordance with my nature? And I am a, I am a creature. So I as a creature beget a creature. <clears throat> when I beget, in accordance with my nature, I beget a creature. When God begets, in accordance with his nature, 
He does not beget a creature. He begets God, God the Son. God the Father begets in accordance with his nature, God the Son. All right, you follow this. The answer to begotten here is how it is used with respect to the nature of the being who is being described as begetting. You cannot take the definition of the word begotten and say, well, Denison, you've begotten sons, which I have done. Two sons, two daughters. I don't want to leave them out. You've begotten sons and daughters. Okay? But your sons and daughters aren't eternal. Therefore, when God begets, God begets something that is not eternal. What's the flaw in the logic? The flaw in the logic is not realizing that we've moved into a different category of being when we're using this term begotten. Begotten with respect to God means that he begets in accordance with his nature. As begotten with respect to a creature means to beget in accordance with a creature's nature. Your Jehovah's Witness door knockers will not understand it. They cannot get that. But that is the point that you have to emphasize because they will trick you with their watchtower handout and say they come to talk to you about the Son of God. If you ever enter into a dialogue with them, that is exactly where the discussion will go, as all of us know who have dialogue with them. They will come to you to talk to you about the Son of God, and you will immediately be caught off guard. Son of God, well, I didn't think you people believed in the Son of God. Well, of course we believe in the Son of God. Just like you have a son, Mr. Dennison, see? God has a son. Just like you begot your son, Mr. Dennison, God begot his son. Just so like your son is a creature, Mr. Dennison, God's son is a creature. That's <clears throat> that's the mantra that they have memorized, and that's what they will uh, describe and promote in your at your doorstep. Uh, don't let them in the house. Not unless they agree to take something from you, which they will never do, or <clears throat> unless they agree to have a sit-down discussion, which I did with one of their bishops for five hours one night. It was a very interesting evening, very challenging, extremely challenging. But it was clear at the end of the day that he did not believe Jesus was God. And he didn't think that I'd proven from the Bible that he was. The one passage he could not answer was John twenty twenty eight where Thomas says to Jesus, my Lord and my God. That is the one text that every Jehovah's Witness stumbles over. They can't come to grips with it. Question? Yeah, don't they anthropomorphize God? Isn't he, isn't he human? No, that's Mormonism. But I, I remember seeing in a Watchtower pamphlet a physical God, like a person, a man person, God. They, yeah, they, they may portray him that way. Uh, I'm not aware that they have an anthropomorphic uh, doctrine of God. Uh, the Mormons definitely do. Do you know that, Benji? Do you know that they have an anthropomorphic doctrine of God? Um, no, I'm not sure about that, but I have seen the pictures, and in some discussions, um, they do talk as if that's how God looks. Yeah. So, um, I, yeah, I haven't done... 
Yeah, the iconography or the representation is one thing. Whether they actually believe it's it's concrete, you know, I, I, I'm not aware of that. But you know, I may stand corrected. All right, now to finish this off, the relationship of the father to the son is the relationship of an uncreated father to an uncreated son. And we'll leave it there and take your break and we'll come back to discuss the meaning of the word today. Now we have attempted to assess the meaning of this language which is used by the Old and New Testament writers here. Uh, We've addressed, first of all, the word begotten. Now... We want to look at the meaning of the word today. And we ask ourselves, is this word today, in this context, a temporal word, a temporal clause? Today I have begotten thee as a time-dependent clause. If so then what do we have? Okay, you're smiling? Well, then there would have been a time that he was not. Very good. And who said, who in the history of the church said, Who said there was a time when he, the Son of God, was not? Do you know who said that, Kay? No. I should, but I don't. You've heard it, but it was it was it was back in the patristics course when you yeah, sat through that. Yeah, that. good. Did jog jog your memory? Yeah. Who said it? Arius. Bill, who said it? Arius. Arius said it. <clears throat> All right, now who is Arius? Okay, do you remember who Arius was? No. <laughs> Back to Bill. Who's Arius, Bill? A heretic. He is a heretic. <laughs> that is true. Uh, what century? Fourth century. Robert? Fourth century. Fourth century. Where is he from? Where is he from, Pete? You would ask me that one. I know all the other ones. He's. Where is he from, Benji? Constantinople and then North Africa. Where is he from, Ben? Do you know? Gone, Benji. Where is he from? I can't remember. Predator, right next door. Huh? Bishop is Alexander. Of the city, he's a predator in the bishop's <coughs> episcopus, duchy, his his, his episcopus, <coughs> Alexandria, Egypt. Okay, he's from Alexandria, Egypt, and he begins to preach this. And the bishop of the city, namely Alexander of Alexandria, begins to smell a rat. And so he calls him in, <coughs> and he examines him. And the first time he examines him... <coughs> 
he lets him off because Arius does not say this. But the second time that he examines him, Arius has made a confession in which he has declared this uh, very uh, stunning and blasphemous statement. And that, of course, leads to what? This whole Arian tempest in a teapot leads to what? Anita, what's it lead to? Robert, what's it lead to? Uh, This controversy? Yes, it leads to the Nicene Creed. To the Council of Nicaea and the Nicene Creed. And the Nicene Creed, back to UK, the Nicene Creed, are they agreeing with this statement or not agreeing with this statement? Not agreeing. Is your name Kay? (laughs) (laughs) I didn't know you'd change your name, Joe. Go ahead, Kay. They do not agree with this. They do not agree with this because the Nicene Creed, which you have recited and used in this church in worship services in the evening particularly, you remember that it says that the Son is eternal. There wasn't a time when he was not. There was not a time when he was not, okay? So the Nicene Council and the Nicene Creed are specifically repudiating this statement that there was never a time when he was not. And who is the champion of this creed? Bill? Brett? Who's the champion of Nicaea? Athanasius, correct. Whom I commended to you last week and encourage you to read uh, his Incarnation of the Word, which is up on the Internet. You could read it in about three or four hours. Some parts of it you could skip over, particularly the more philosophical parts. But that book by Athanasius, which is available free of charge on the Internet, on the Incarnation of the Word, is a wonderful defense of the deity of Christ and of uh, his eternal generation. But uh, just if, if you don't want to take on the book... Uh, though it would be good for your soul. There are lots of things that would be good for your soul rather than the fluff you pick up in the ordinary Christian bookstore. But at any rate, if you don't want to take on the book, uh, uh, take a look at that Athanasian Creed, which is in the gray hymnal uh, here and uh, in any old uh, traditional Psalter hymnal. And also can be found on the Internet free of charge. You can take a look at the Athanasius Creed as a very fine summary of uh, the Nicene theology. Okay, well... Back to the clause uh, temporal. Uh, There is not a time reference here in the word today because, again, the word is relative to the being using it. In relationship to the being saying today. So that for a created being, it would refer to a temporal sequence. But for an uncreated being, it refers to an atemporal sequence. That is, a sequence not in time. Right now, how can I say atemporal another way? One word for atemporal. Stephen? Eternal. Eternal. All right, so this today is an eternal today. Because the being who says that today I have begotten thee is an eternal being. Today for an eternal being is an eternal today. It is not a created today 
It is not a 24-hour period like our created today, a today in which we as creatures live in and under. It is a timeless today. It is an eternal today. All right, we do not read into the relationship, the categories of the creature, because the being who is being described is not a creature who is using these terms in these relational categories. That brings us then to the paternal and filial relation. What can we say in conclusion or in summary about the paternal, that is the father and filial or son relation? Going back to the word begotten, the always begetting father is related to an always begotten son. Or an eternally begetting father is always related to an eternally begotten son. By the same token, and always today for the father is an always today for the son. So how long has the father been related as father to his son? Eternal. How long has the son been related to his father? Eternal. Which means that we have an eternally begetting father and an eternally begotten son. Even as we have an eternal father and an eternal son... And the relationship between them is described as one who is begotten and one who begets. Then we take the next logical step to say we have an eternally begetting father and an eternally begotten son. It seems rather simple and straightforward. And yet not only did Arius object to it, all Unitarians object to it. All those that believe in a one God in one person deity object to it. And yet it is what we are driven to by the testimony of Scripture. So that the expression which describes what we have just concluded, the eternal generation... of the Son by the Father is derived from the proper understanding of the language of the inspired Word of God. The eternal generation of the Son of God by God the Father is taught in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5, as it is taught in Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, as it is taught in John chapter 1, verse 14 and 18, as it taught in John three sixteen. You all know that verse, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. What does it mean, only 
begotten son. It means eternally generated son. I never thought about that verse that way. All right, maybe you haven't, but now you may. Now you may think about it that way. It's not only a wonderful testimony to your salvation as a believer, but it's also a wonderful testimony to the one who saves you as a believer, to who he is. He is the eternally generated Son of the Father. So how long has the Son been begotten of the Father? From all eternity? To all eternity? Because it is the eternal relationship between the Father and Son, the relationship between two eternal persons of the Godhead. Now, we haven't talked about the relationship of the Holy Spirit because it's not in the text here. But to round it off, the eternal relationship of the Holy Spirit would not be to be begotten, not to be eternally generated. But from John chapter 14 and 15, the Holy Spirit would be eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. When we say proceeding from the Father and the Son, we distinguish ourselves from the Eastern Orthodox churches who refuse to acknowledge that the Spirit proceeds from the Son. He proceeds from the Father alone. And incidentally, that is the reason in 1054 A.D., that the Eastern Orthodox Church split from the Latin Rite Roman Catholic Church. They divided over that one idea and excommunicated one another over it. All right? Because the Eastern Church said that there is no evidence in the Scriptures that the Spirit proceeds from the Son, proceeds from the Father alone, they'll say through the Son, but not from the Son. Well, <clears throat> that's a minor historical point. Well, it's not a minor, it was a major division in Christendom. Never should have happened. You wouldn't divide you know, Christendom over, over that point. You could agree to disagree on something like that. But nonetheless, when we're talking about these relationships between the persons of the Godhead, it is the character of the Father to be eternally Father and to be the eternally source of the procession of the Holy Spirit through the Son. It is eternally the relationship of the Son to be the Son of the Father, to be begotten of Him eternally, and to have the Spirit proceed from Him, uh, as well as the Father. It is the eternal relationship of the Holy Spirit to the Father and the Son, to not be begotten of them, and not to be the begetter of them, but to eternally proceed from both of them. And what are we discussing? We are summarizing what are called the incommunicable personal attributes of the persons of the Godhead. Incommunicable. Because they have communicable qualities. What they communicate in, what they share equally, is Godness, deity. They are all God. Father is God, Son is God, Holy Spirit is God. That essence... They share equally. But 
The Father is not the Son. So there's something that distinguishes the Father from the Son. Remember, Jesus can address the Father as you. The Father can address the Son as you. The Son can address himself as I. He has a personal self-consciousness. You can say I about yourself. So can the Son of God. But when he says that about himself, he's not saying that about himself as Father or Holy Spirit. He's saying that about himself as Son. That's the reason he talks to his Father as his Father. That is a distinct personal. That is a distinct personal uh, quality, a distinct personal differentiation. Distinct person. That is the incommunicable. The son does not communicate his sonship to the other two persons of the Godhead, even as the father does not communicate his fatherhood to the other two persons of the Godhead. The Holy Spirit does not communicate his spiration to the other two persons of the Godhead. That is their distinct personal quality. Distinct, but not what, Stephen? Not separate, not divided. Not divided. Distincte non divise. Who said that? Stephen? Tertullian. Tertullian in the third century, early third century North African church father gives us that classic phrase that you all can use in English. They are distinct but not separate persons. Distinct person, father is not the son, son and father not the Holy Spirit, etc. But they are not separate in their deity in their essence, in their being. All right, we can say that. We hold that together. It helps us get our handle on the Trinity. It helps us to conceptualize it a little bit. But it doesn't solve the profound mystery of it. Because we don't have any consciousness of people who are three and yet one in the same sense. We don't have it doesn't exist in our frame of reference. It can't exist in the creature, but it can exist in the creator for some reason known to him that the one God can be distinct in three persons without dividing that unity, without destroying that unity and making it three gods. And at the same time, not collapsing this distinction into a simply a role-playing uh, concept of the Godhead, in which the Father plays the different plays the role of Creator when He creates. He plays the role of Redeemer when He redeems. He plays the role of Son when He redeems. He plays the role of Holy Spirit when He sanctifies. That's a role-playing God who is who is simply a Unitarian God. He's one God in one person. It's an ancient error of called modalism, <clears throat> and <clears throat> that church down in uh, Mount Lake Terrace called the UPC Church, United Pentecostal Church. That is a modalistic church. It's an anti-Trinitarian, Unitarian Pentecostal church. Very beautiful building, but that's the way they advertise. They've got a radio show every Saturday afternoon. You turn them in and listen to them. They can talk to you all day long about why only begotten means that it's just another role that the Father, the one God, plays. Okay. 
Any questions about that? Now let's confirm some of our discussion as we look at these quotations from the Confessions, beginning with the Westminster Confession of 1647. In the unity of Godhead, there be three persons of one substance, power, and eternity. What synonym could we use for substance there? Anyone? Essence. Essence. Nature. Okay. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. There are the three persons of the Godhead distinguished. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. Notice, the Father is a Father. He is not a begotten person of the Godhead. He is not a proceeding person of the Godhead. He is a Father in the Godhead. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. Here is the Westminster Confession affirming the eternal generation of the Son of God. The Holy Ghost eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. Notice the proof texts that are given there. Some of them we have already uh, looked at, and uh, those we haven't or haven't looked at, uh, you can examine yourself at your leisure. So here is what some regard as the crown of the Reformed Confessions, the most precise confessional reform document ever written. And it is affirming the traditional historic orthodox doctrine of the Trinity, namely there are three persons in the one divine essence. Their names are listed and they are distinguished in terms of their incommunicable properties, namely the Father is not begotten or proceeding. That's his incommunicable property. The Son is distinguished by his communicable property of being incommunicable property, rather being begotten of the Father eternally. And the Holy Ghost is distinguished by his incommunicable property of being proceed, of eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. There is your unity and distinction. Your essential unity and your personal distinction without dividing or separating the Godhead in its essence. Now, the second document takes us back to Geneva. And the confessions of the students at Geneva in 1559. How is it that we come to have students in Geneva in 1559? Who is the leader of the city of Geneva in 1559? Do you know, Brett? It is John Calvin. How long will he live? He dies in uh, 1564. Very good. He dies in 1564. Now, how is it, Brett, that in 1559 he has students? That's a mystery to me. I, I didn't know you that. did so well. I thought that I would oppress you one more. Bill, can you help him out? Did he set up an academy? He set up the academy. When Calvin came to Geneva for the second time in 1541, he longed to build a school. He wanted a school, but he had to overcome the tension and the polarization in the political uh, echelons. Yes, he fought with bureaucrats. And so he finally accomplished the establishment of the academy, the Geneva Academy, in 1559. And he invited somebody to come to be a professor in that academy. Do you know who he was? Theodore Beza, correct. And uh, you jump down to confession, you see Beza's confession. We'll come back to that in a moment. All right, so the students at Geneva in this academy write or subscribe to a confession. Now remember, Calvin is in the city 
approving and endorsing this confession. This is his city and his academy. And therefore, the confession comes with his endorsement. What do they say? The students confess one God in whom it is necessary for us to acquiesce, that we must worship and adore him. And in that one, we must place all of our hope. And although he is one simple essence, give me a synonym for essence. Substance. Nature. All right. He is nevertheless distinct in three persons. Where did they get that idea, Stephen? Tertullian. They're going back to the ancient language of distinct but not separate. For I acknowledge that in this simplicity, in the one essence, what they mean by simplicity is in the one essence of God, there is the Father who has begotten his word from eternity. How long has the word been begotten according to Calvin's students? Eternally. Does Calvin believe in eternal generation? You betcha he does. You betcha he does. And I therefore defy anyone to look at the primary documents and say that John Calvin does not believe in the eternal generation of the Son of God. Read the primary documents. All right, now, next we come to Latanzio Ragnoni. Now, who is Ragnoni? He is a pastor in Calvin's Geneva. But he is not the pastor of Calvin's church. With that name, he's the pastor of what church? The Italian church. Yes. When... Calvin is preaching at Saint-Pierre to the French-speaking audience in Geneva. There is a refugee congregation of Italian expatriates who have fled Roman Catholic Italy and have settled in Geneva. And they have a church with a pastor who in 1557 is Latanzio Ragnoni. Now, Ragnoni writes a formulario. Now, the formulario is his creed, his confession. It comes out of the context of the Italian humanists insinuating themselves into that Italian congregation in Geneva and beginning to preach Unitarianism. Who was the most famous advocate of this that Calvin had to deal with? Bill? Is it No, he's Roman Catholic. No, he's Anabaptist, and Calvin didn't have to deal with him directly. Who's the most famous Unitarian or anti-Trinitarian that Calvin had to deal with? Miguel Servetus, Michael Servetus, correct. And what happened to Servetus? He came to Geneva in 1553, was arrested, and was executed, but burned at the stake six years before this formula was written, that doctrine of Servetus's was brought by other Italian humanist disciples of Servetus and insinuated into the Italian congregation of Geneva so that in 1558 they wrote their own Trinitarian confession and a year later their pastor wrote his complete creed in which he states, as for the Son, we believe and confess that he is God with the Father. 
No Servitan, no anti-Trinitarian would say that. Son, unique in his nature, eternally generated of the same substance equal to the Father in all things. So what is the doctrine of the Italian Calvinistic church in Geneva during Calvin's own uh, pastorate or leadership of the city? It is the doctrine of the eternal generation of the son of the father of the same substance of the father. Once again, Calvin knew about this statement. He knew about the confession in 1558 of the Italian church. He, in fact, approved that Italian confession of 1558. He implicitly improved, approved this statement from the pastor of that congregation who sadly died in 1559 after he had published his own formulario. This is a reformed or Calvinistic confession on the doctrine of the Trinity. It is a primary document from within Calvin's Geneva. And now we come to Beza. Beza's confession is the confession of a man who was a great friend of Calvin for the last five years of Calvin's life, from 1559 when he came to the academy to 1564 when Calvin died. And what happened to Beza in 1564? Anyone? Took over Calvin's He succeeded Calvin as the leader of the Reformed Church in Geneva. So he is Calvin's successor. This confession, which Beza printed in 1560, was actually written years earlier. But notice what Beza says. We believe that Jesus Christ concerning his divine nature is the only son of God begotten from everlasting and not made one with the father in substance, co-eternal and consubstantial. What does the word consubstantial mean? Not sharp enough yet. Consubstantial. Of the same substance, correct. And where does that phrase come from? Of the same substance. I think it was Anita that blurted that out. Where does it come from? Where do you first read that? Bill? Nicene Creed. Yes, comes from the Nicene Creed and the Greek word homoousios which means of the same substance. It's translated in your English version of the creed that the son is of the same substance with the father, consubstantial, in some of the older versions of the creed. All right, if he is of the same substance, how is it that he shares the same substance? Because he is eternally begotten of the substance of the father. Co-eternal means equally eternal. Co as a prefix means equal. Con means equal or along with. So Beza, another Calvin contemporary, affirms the eternal generation of the Son four years before Calvin dies, publishes this confession in Latin and in French so that Calvin knows about it. It is inconceivable that Calvin would not have checked off on it. And now we come to the Confessio Catholica of 1562 of the Hungarian Reformed Church. From Budapest. And the great Hungarian reformer. 
great Hungarian Calvinistic reformer, Peter Melius. All right, notice the expression here. The substantial work, odd intra, or property of the Father, is to beget the Son, of the Son to be begotten, and of the Holy Spirit to proceed from the Father and the Son. Now, that clause, odd intra, means what? Among themselves. Among themselves or from within. From within. Notice, this is talking about the internal, essential Godhead. What they are in and of themselves, not what they are with respect to the creation, to the economy of redemption. This is not the economic trinity, this is the essential trinity. Okay, So, within themselves, it is the property, it is the personal, incommunicable property of the Father to beget. It is the personal, incommunicable property of the Son to be begotten. It is the personal, incommunicable property of the Holy Spirit to proceed from the Father and the Son. Here is a Calvinistic confession written before Calvin dies in 1562, a confession of which he was informed. And once again, this confession affirms that the Son is begotten of the Father. I would say and add eternally begotten because it's implicit if not explicit. And if it's not explicit, then we come back to another Hungarian and Transylvanian confession, Darkal and Torda, which we have noted before this evening. And notice what this confession does say. We believe in God the Father, whose person is not the Son, although he begat his Son from eternity. To this very same East European nation, Hungary and Transylvania, is affirming what the Hungarian Confession, Confessio Catholica, is saying in 1562, implicitly making it explicitly explicit, he begat his son from eternity. Once again, a Calvinistic confession affirming very clearly the eternal generation of the Son of God. Now, are these confessions inventing this doctrine or this notion of the eternal generation of the Son? No. They are reading Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5, Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, John chapter 1, chapter 3, etc. They are reading the Bible. The confession is not imposing a notion on the Bible. It is deriving these ideas from the Bible, as you saw in our laborious tracing out of the meaning of the term begotten and today in Hebrews 1, 5. Therefore, the confession is a summary of the teaching of the scripture. It is not a replacement of the scripture by the traditions of men. Insofar as it agrees with the interpretation of the exegesis of the scripture, it is a biblical condensation of the meaning of the word of God. And although it does not replace the word of God, it is nonetheless and aid to our understanding in summary fashion what the Word of God teaches. Every one of these statements, as you can see, has proof texts attached to it. That is, passages from the Bible in which those 
phrases are supported by a verse of the scriptures. The mind of the writers of the confession is to be biblical and to condense or summarize what the Bible is teaching in these phrases or expressions that are recorded here. They are not attempting to place their expression or confession over the Bible. They are attempting to explicate or expound what the Bible is teaching in their own words, citing the texts which they think support the clauses which they have uh, written here. That is the way that is the way that the creeds of the Orthodox Church have been de- uh, been developed all the way back to the Nicene Council. These were not statements that were imposed upon the church for philosophical reasons or political reasons or other nefarious ulterior motives. These were statements that were given to the church, drafted for the church because those that drafted them were working on the scriptures, studying the word of God, trying to understand the mind of his self-revelation as it had been given in Hebrews chapter 1 and other places. Those fathers wrote extensive commentaries on those passages. You can read those commentaries in their writings. They were men of scripture. They weren't infallible. But they were trying, particularly on the doctrine of Trinity, to understand what the mind of God had revealed through his written revelation. This was their book of reference. Not the philosophers of Greece, not Aristotle and Plato, not some idea that had come come out of a human tradition, but what God himself had recorded for their edification and understanding. They believed all scripture was given by inspiration of God. Every one of those fathers believed that. So don't come to me and say that the Nicene Creed is an invention of a Greek church arguing on the basis of Aristotelian, Platonic, or other Greek philosophy in a way to squeeze the church into their own political mold. Don't tell me that. That is not true. That is not what those writers of that document say about why they were writing it. They say they are writing what the scriptures teach. That is their authority. That is what they are appealing to. Now, why do we uh, belabor this? Because in the Reformed Church today, in the Reformed Church today, there are those who reject the eternal generation of the Son of God. There have been candidates before committees and presbyteries of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church who have affirmed explicitly that they do not believe in the Westminster Confession, chapter two, paragraph, chapter three, paragraph three. They reject the eternal generation of the Son of God. It is now being acknowledged in certain seminaries in the Reformed movement that professors of systematic theology are saying that they are agnostic on the point of the eternal generation of the Son of God. Men who are teaching in Reformed theological seminaries who have taken a vow to uphold the Westminster Standards and are saying they're agnostic about what the Westminster Standards say about the eternal generation of the Son of God. Are we to go through another argument and debate 
over the doctrine of the Trinity and the persons of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit because we have people in our own day who are ignorant of the historical discussion of this matter from Nicaea on down who have never read Athanasius and his defense of the Nicene Creed where he exegetes Hebrews and John and Psalms and Proverbs and other numerous innumerable passages of the Word of God in order to defend the Nicene Council and its exegesis. What is going on in Reformed theological education? I'll tell you what's going on in Reformed theological education. Propaganda. That's what's going on. Not education. Not informed primary document education. Ignorance being communicated from lecterns in theological seminaries by people who have never read the sources. And those graduates are coming to your churches, your presbyteries, your denomination. And you thought that your OPC was safe. Not unless you are on your guard and not unless you are going to hold the seminary professors and their boards accountable. No. The progressives will take over your church as they have taken over every reformed church in the history of the reform movement. They will simply wear you out with their progressive PhD-itism. We are the elite educated doctors of the church. We are the experts. When the experts have not read the primary documents, then the church is in trouble, and the pew that allows the church to, allows them to get away with it is in trouble too, because you are abrogating your role of holding them accountable. So do it to me. Hold me accountable. Hold me accountable to the Word of God and to the primary sources. That's my authority. And if I waffle, then you correct me. As Pete did last week when he cited Psalm 91, verse 11. And I waffled. And so I want to retract what I said. When he cited the psalm in which he gives his angels charge over you. And I ducked it thinking that it was specific for a messianic fulfillment only and not a generic, general, every believer fulfillment. No, it's there. Now, how it's there is another question, but it is there. And so even I have to be held accountable to what the text says. And thank you, Pete, that's what the text says. All right, we've run out of time, though. We have not run out of the sheet, so bring your sheets back <laughs> next week. But you'll notice that the quotations come from the volumes that I am editing and compiling. That is the compilation of the Reformed Confessions of the 16th, 17th century in English translation. Second volume was published in April. Third volume, uh, Lord willing, maybe next year sometime. But at any rate... You can actually get the full volume, you get the full uh, uh, text of each of these confessions 
Once again, good for your soul. Good for your soul, yes. They're thick. They're a thousand page volumes. You know, that, that good door, that's good door stoppers, paperweights. But it's also good Christian edification. Benji, common question. Uh, there's also a nice review of the first volume in the latest New Horizons as well that you should take a look at if you want. Yes, that was a very pleasant surprise. I'm very grateful to Mark Garcia, who is pastor of uh, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church uh, in, uh, well, in the Moon Township area back in western Pennsylvania. No, I did not. I did not. Bonsoir, madame et monsieur. <laughs>